0: Hello and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Avalon's John Thoday and Sky Deutschland's Johannes Plink about the German version of iconic UK satirical puppet sketch show Spitting Image. Writer Patrick Harbinson and Mammoth Screen's Damien Timmer discuss new ITV drama The Tower. And former A&E Network's Head of Formats, Hayley Babcock, talks about her new consultancy and the partnerships it's building. With Brexit putting a strain on some of the UK's relationships in Europe, Avalon founder and comedy veteran John Thodey has taken it upon himself to build some bridges with Britain's friends on the continent by making local versions of satirical puppet sketch show Spitting Image. The series originally ran for a total of 18 seasons between 1984 and 1996 on ITV in the UK and was rebooted last year by Avalon for the BBC-ITV joint venture streamer Britbox. Thode and Johannes Plenk, Sky Deutschland's director of entertainment channels, spoke to Nico Franks about making Spitting Image, the Krauts edition. The potential for other international versions and why a dearth of breakout US hits is creating opportunities for more ambitious local comedies.
1: We were looking at a puppet show for for a couple of years now. The time never seemed right, but when Avalon approached us last year late, I think it was November, December, uh it's, it's, and we saw the first episode that was done for BritBox in the uk which we really liked and we thought maybe it's a good time to do a hybrid show and british or global content taking uh, taking that over from the Britbox version and adding our own local sketches uh, especially this year, we have we have the general election in Germany, and many many other topics. And we thought that's probably a good good thing for us as a pay pay TV operator to to have a comedy that is so loud or has the potential that going for some sketches to go viral and uh, reach people beyond our paywall. So that people, especially on social media or in press, get aware them and get to know that Sky in Germany is not just football and, and movies, but it's also entertainment and, and comedy. Uh, because we launched our Sky Comedy, our channel, uh, earlier this year in, in April, our version. So we thought that might be the perfect vehicle. And uh, so far, we think it paid off. Uh, so far, we actually have a little bit more than 50% German content that also is... Down to be the, uh, the production uh, facility in, in london is very accommodative and helps us a lot and also our writers could already have all the learnings from the writers of last year for the first british season so i think we could from from right from the start be more efficient and to write the sketches in a way that we could produce more german material than, than planned so we are quite happy that actually i think right now we are more like 55 percent or something but uh, definitely above that threshold which was great because uh, obviously you think local content is and all the global stuff is brilliant but to really reach people in the market you need uh, local stuff
2: and there is a kind of precedent for this there was hurrah deutschland in the late yeah. 80s which was kind of inspired by spitting image but this is a much more kind of formal agreement isn't it
1: yeah well maybe john knows more about hurrah deutschland and but i think it was not an official spin-off as far as we know, and um, which still a lot of people are, have fond memories of Hura Deutschland. But I think, and some people say, ah, it was better back then, as, as people always say. But there's also quite a number of people say, no, it's much better. So it obviously depends whom you ask.
2: Obviously, spitting image is known for being provocative. Is that something that the German version has kind of carried through? And what's the reaction
1: been like? I think we... We thought, think we we could always be more provocative, uh, but we also have some lawyers. <laughs> I would say maybe not, uh, but we try to be as provocative as possible. And I think, at least in in this area, I think we we evenly match the British version, and it's also interesting to see what we are allowed to do in Germany and stuff which is not allowed in the UK, but you can't in, in the other territories. We learned a lot of the past. Months uh, regarding that.
3: When we um, were thinking about bringing Spit Image back and we were talking to Roger, who was the original creator, we realized that the world is much smaller than it was. There were a lot of local versions in the world and they were generally very bespoke to their their territories. And there was a version in Germany. We realized that it's as the world is a smaller place that there was a significant part of the show, probably around 50% of it, maybe a little bit less, depending on what the local producer was thinking which is global and worked in any territory so uh, we set out to basically produce kind of a global version of Spitting Image and partnering with for example Sky Germany to do a hybrid between the global version and a local version done in the local language and with local writing. We also had UK and US writers which was a different way of doing it so that the US end could so we could express the US end of um, the market. And also from a comedy perspective, something that's happened over the last 30 years is, again, the world's become a smaller place. So in a way, The Simpsons was derivative of Monty Python. So the world of comedy is really, really much more universal. You know, it used to be like the idea of lots of British comedy writers working in the US was like an impossibility in the 80s. But now, you know, when now it's sort of normal you know we we do lots of co-productions with america we're very excited about i mean i the german version sort of came about because partly because we wanted to achieve what we've done with germany but also post brexit i thought i'll reach out to all the directors of content in europe and out and beyond and try and do more business with europe not less because i'm not a fan of brexit i think it's an insane thing that the british have done so um So it was sort of partly to do with a Brexit backlash from our point of view, and partly just what we wanted to do anyway, which was partner with different territories and make a great high production value show, because actually bringing spitting image back was a big and expensive job because all the people that created the puppets in the past had either moved on to other jobs working for henson etc working for Madame Tussauds, and unlike producing a tv show which doesn't involve puppets that you have to build or caricatures people sort of had to leave their jobs to come and set the workshop up again. So that was that was a big hump we had to get over when we thought about bringing it back.
2: We were referencing the 80s kind of version, Herard Deutschland, but that
3: wasn't an official kind of remake of Spitting Image. In the world, some of them were official remakes, and some of them were ones where the puppet expertise was sold. So some, the local broadcaster did the show and the, the expertise of building the puppets was sold. I'm not sure whether the German one was official or unofficial. There was one in France. The reason we have yet to... We we were expecting to launch a French version. But there's there was a very long running show in France, which wasn't official. We actually only finished a couple of years ago because there was a controversy with the owner of the channel. So that, that's why we haven't got a French version at the moment, but we expect in the future to have one. And as I say, that was definitely, that was an unofficial version of Spitting Image. But I mean, th- there are so many that I can't, don't have in my head, which are official, which are unofficial, which were Puppet Supply, and not Puppet Supply, but actually the technology behind the puppets has moved on. So if you go and look at old Spitting Image, and you actually look at the old Spitting Image puppets with modern filming techniques, you couldn't really use them because they were quite rough. And actually the new puppets are kind of HD friendly (laughs) puppets. And that was, again, something we had to kind of deal with. We're seeing in lots of ways, a lot of money kind of
2: flowing into comedy, lots of US, UK co-productions, very high budget shows now. Is that something that's kind of coming into Germany as well? Are you noticing the projects you're being pitched, are they more ambitious these days?
1: Well, they're definitely more ambitious. Ambition, as you said, I mean, comedy is, is a key thing. I mean, in the last couple of years, a lot of investments come into dramas and high-end drama series. One has a feeling that's already peaked. I'm not sure whether it actually did peak yet, but the thing is, like, and where else can people grow? Where else can streaming services or us actually grow? Where's an area that is probably under and underfunded or under delivered or sub undersupplied. The thing is, like, the US networks for a couple of years they did not deliver as many new good comedies, which you could actually then buy in bulk and and kind of you know uh, schedule and and binge uh, through. Um, the last couple of the big successes, Big big theories, now gone, Modern Family had its run over two years ago and so forth, and there's no replacement yet. And at the same time, people know that if you have a good comedy show, people are very loyal. You see the, the value of comedy classics like uh, Seinfeld or Friends what value they have nowadays to, to services around the world and uh, that's one thing and there's not enough comedy out there for the appetite for all the services and for, for the audiences and at the same time it's it's very good not just globally but actually as I said before on a local level um, if you have a good local comedy show people just will love you for it and if you achieve that then, um, then you have loyal customers I think
3: John how about you what's your take on that I agree that the U.S. has failed to produce enough comedy and the old days of friends Frasier, seinfeld um to even the simpsons are sort of gone sadly i mean big bang theory theory is probably the most recent significant comedy in the world and so i think actually for me that's an opportunity for everybody you know we are a big part of what we do is comedy and i think that in the i think that the s-fods interestingly have well certainly netflix have struggled a bit with comedy because sometimes it's not because it's not driven by necessarily by strict narrative it, it's more character driven and joke driven learning to like something when you drop 10 episodes all at once can be difficult right so one of the good things about spitting image is your it is a weekly show you kind of have to do it as a weekly show and i i know that in the light of things like that's Netflix is sort of thinking about, whether they ought to be dropping Comedy Weekly, not all at once, but it's different from a big drama. And so I see it as an opportunity, particularly to collaborate with companies like Sky in Germany, is something very exciting for us, because obviously, one, we are like-minded in our needs, but also from a commercial point of view, the rights... Split is better than selling a show outright to, um, uh, well, let's say Sky's parent, Peacock. Um, but, um, so, but so, I mean, so from our, so I think, and it's also interesting, like I was saying about the way comedy is more bringing the world together than it's ever ever done. You know, I mean, we we are. We know that the Germans are good at comedy. So other people might not know that. And that's true in lots of territories. So Spain, for example, has a big comedic track record. And we are in discussion about the exhibiting image in Spain. In the Nordics, likewise, obviously they have big English language audiences, but... We're in conversation there. That probably couldn't ever, couldn't have happened in the previous incarnation of Spitting Image, and some of it is because local broadcasters need to partner with other broadcasters because of Netflix, Apple, Amazon, you know the, the you know the the conglomerates. So Sky is kind of a high, it's somewhere in between the two, you know. So it's kind of an interesting thing that's going on. And also wanting to have very high production values for local programming is a problem for everybody, because Netflix has raised the bar in production values. But if you have a show which is only UK based, it's quite hard to spend the same amount of money on something that can only appeal to a UK audience. But luckily, there's a global audience. So with Spitting Image, we've been able to, I think, have very high production values and a local version in Germany, as we would in Spain. But you couldn't just do that in your own right so it's kind of so there's a couple of things going on there and a lot of it's to do with there's a great global need for comedy the us is not really supplying it and i think that other territories the uk other germany spain you know are definitely um generating interesting ideas there's you know there's a couple of writers out of germany i think are significant comedic writers that could work in any territory so For me, we're all being forced to think a bit differently. That can only be good. We were going to do the show with NBC and Sky. So our original co-pro between the US and the UK was NBC. It was going to play after SNL and Sky in the UK. And then ITV slash BritBox swooped and made us an offer that, they were prepared to commit beyond a season. And actually the cost of bringing the show back meant that we needed a two season commitment and we couldn't get NBC sky UK would have done it. NBC wouldn't. And so we didn't really have a choice. And then there were plenty of other players, but our our ultimate choice was between Britbox and um, sky UK and NBC and Britbox USA slash YouTube slash ES, you know, transactional. Um, And working with Britbox has been great. You know, they are essentially run by Kevin Ligo, who runs ITV. So Britbox is really a Kevin driven thing and they've been very very supportive of the show we've enjoyed being on itv as well you know they showed there was an episode broadcast last year which had very significant ratings i think beat all comedies on itv for a number of years so yeah it's been a i think a good relationship you know i I, it's no secret that we we'd like to be a bit more on 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 a bigger platform you know i would like to be on itv a bit more because obviously ha- what happens with Britbox in the future, as it's the kind of co-venture between ITV and the BBC, we don't really know what, what I'm not sure that uh, both organisations totally agree with each other. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the relationship, you know, Britbox have been great and Kevin's been
2: great. There's quite a few US writers, aren't there, on the on the current series of BritBox? But is is that US version that you know potentially could have been made? Is that still something on your
3: radar? Or... Well, we we are in discussion well, with both Canada and another US buyer to next season maybe do something. So, but it's not firm yet. We're we're further down the line with you know other European territories. Having said that, we've been, it's been performing incredibly well on YouTube in the US, and we're finding that. So like we make a show Taskmaster, you probably know, that's massive on YouTube in the US to the point where we're now thinking we don't even want to make a US version. We're just letting it grow and the revenue is quite significant for us. So we, interestingly, there's a route to market, which doesn't involve a gatekeeper, which from our point of view as content providers is quite exciting. Interestingly, if you put comedy up on YouTube, we've noticed both with Spitting Image and with Taskmaster that every week we're getting more views. It's, it's growing and it was growing even when we weren't making the show. So a small audience in the US is a giant audience in the world the niche nature of the US market means that you can find maybe 3 4 million people that will like something in a or in a you know population of 350 million or whatever it is mm-hmm. so that's sort of why interesting tv
2: gets made in the US now i think and johannes is that something you're exploring as well because obviously most of your or well, pretty much all your content on sky germany is behind a paywall so do you use youtube to to try and draw audiences in
1: uh youtube is not our, our key uh, thing at the moment we have a youtube channel in germany but this is not playing a, ma- a massive role uh but we've been experimenting uh we've been experimenting with various social media platforms releasing you know the first episode of a sky original and so forth but uh with the spitting image it was kind of for the first time that we really regularly release sketches or clips from a, from our show on social media, because in the past was scripted. Sky originals, we only did something, or released some the first episode or the first five minutes or so, and that was it. And then the next six, seven or whatever episodes, we didn't release much. Uh, but here we have the first time for a continuous release pattern where we release every week a couple of clips, uh, which will go all the way until we air our Christmas special at the end of the year. So the thing is really, um, that's an experiment also for us and and to see which social media platform works best and uh, we will see. Interesting,
2: okay. And just before I let you go, uh, so John, when we spoke last year, you were talking about developing more studio sitcoms with the BBC, so I was just wondering, if there's uh, an update there.
3: Well, we there was, I know you noticed that there was a regime change. So the answer is, yes, we are. I would say it hasn't moved qu- as quickly as we hope, because basically it was announced that Shane was leaving and then there was a hiatus and then John arrived and we had a very good conversation with John a couple of weeks ago. So we're very much hoping to continue that journey. And we we have yeah some interesting things to announce, but they're not really ready for you now.
0: The Tower is a three-part miniseries adapted by Homeland scribe Patrick Harbinson from the crime novels of Kate London, produced by the writer's own outfit Windhover Films and ITV Studios-owned Mammoth Screen. The show, which stars Killing Eve's Gemma Whelan, is a cop drama based on the first of London's Metropolitan series of novels, Post Mortem, and is due to air on November the eighth, distributed by ITV Studios. Harbinson, whose credits include 24, ER, Law and & Order and Fearless, spoke to Ruth Laws about making the show, alongside Mammoth Joint Chief Executive Damien Timmer, how the TV drama differs from the original and the pair's creative processes.
4: My first question is, I wondered what attracted you to Kate London's book, Postmortem, and how true the script is to the novel.
5: So it's really simple. First thing was, she's just a very good writer. But in terms of stories, there are lots of beast novels around and crime novels. She just took such a a small event field, as I would call it, ordinary things in an ordinary neighbourhood, just spiralling out of control and ending up with this terrible tragedy, the two bodies. So uh, I loved that and the way she wrote. And uh, when I read it, and then very quickly read the novels she's written, I thought, gosh, this is a really serious writer. So I started the fight for the option and eventually won it.
4: And were you particularly attracted to Kate because she actually was a former Met officer? Did that add like a level of authenticity that other crime writers don't have?
5: Yes. I mean, Damien will say the same. You're always not necessarily looking for authenticity. You're looking for characters, really. Either you're creating them yourself, so they surprise you or you're looking for them in other people, in books and so on. But absolutely, the fact that she had walked the walk really, really helped.
4: Um, And how do you come, come across Her novel in the first place. Is it something you had on your bookshelf?
5: No, I was um, I was coming to the end of a a long stint on an American series, and I was looking literally looking for something to do in the UK. Um, And Kate's agent came to me and said, uh, "Well, have a look at these." And I did, and I I loved them, as I said. So it was really it was happenstance, and they just I think they just come out of option, and so there uh, there are quite a few companies going after them. And I, I know I was really helped by the fact that I was I wanted to write them myself, and so if Kate had gone with other bigger companies, she Knew because she'd been through the process before that they would have had to find a writer. She would have had to talk to the writer. There would have been all that uh, that necessary dance. And in my case, we just cut to the chase. I said, I'm, "I want to do them all." And so it was just a question of did she did she like me? Um, so it was nice and simple.
4: Um, and how true is the script, the novel, and the characters?
5: Uh, I've removed things. Quite a lot of the backstory is just gone. That was the a function of only having three hours, which I felt was right. I've added a few things just to uh, make the story a little more dramatic. And one of the big changes was there are two female characters in the novel, Sarah and Lizzie, and I made Lizzie Black because I knew that would make the story resonate in all sorts of interesting ways. Those are the major changes. Apart from that, it's Kate, really is. And the best scenes, when I look at it now, I think, oh, that's good. And then I think, oh, that's Kate. Um, she's just, you know, the really good things for Kate London.
4: I know the police officer who ended up dead, he made a, a racist comment, didn't he? And that, Correct. that features, oh, that's quite a big part of the plot. I wondered, was that in the book? Yes. Uh, and then obviously then making Lizzie... Black adds another dimension to that.
5: Another dimension. Do you support your colleague? And that was, that as I, obviously you can just tell just the way you said it. I mean, it adds resonance. Um, it makes it much more contemporary, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Um, and how involved were you both in the casting?
5: Beginning to end. I mean, very much when I did this, I, I was intending to do it um, as I would have done a show in America. I was going to write and produce it. So uh, every major decision, um, the only person that I had to get the approval of, which is the hard one, is Damien and I had sort of mutual approval. Um, and he, he and I, I mean, we've known each other in an awful long time I
6: mean it probably wasn't that protracted process we love our cast we are so pleased with them and of course it now feels like no one else could play those parts and it was all sort of um, predestined and of course it, it wasn't but we um the way it came together delights us and we're so lucky to have Jammer we're so lucky to have Jimmy I and mean, it's just so boring to say how lucky we are to have each of them but they all balance each other out so beautifully and I think there's something because it's a very as Patrick says it's a it's a it's a kind of a chamber piece in a way I mean it's a very you've got to a handful of characters and over the three hours you just twist and twist and take a magnifying glass to this kind of quartet of characters who are just slowly moving around each other and you have to it's like balancing an equation I think making the casting of that work and I, I think it really does it's um, a delight to watch
4: um, I think this is Gemma Whelan's or first main role in a major series was that intentional?
6: I, I, I think that was that was exciting to us we had no reservations about that and I hope everyone who has seen it or will see it, will agree that she just, you know, she's a leading, a leading actor. Uh, she commands the screen. She absolutely deserves to be at the centre of it and holds her own so magnificently. I think that is something wonderful that comes out of, you know, the freshness of having uh, someone who we've all watched and loved in in lots of amazing shows, but actually having her front and centre of this I think gives a, a, a sort of a special frisson.
5: And funnily enough, I mean, you might have heard this elsewhere. Kate gave me, Kate London gave me a very short list of actors who she'd love to play uh, Sarah and Gemma was right there.
4: I also wondered, having previously collaborated together on Fearless, what have you learned about each other's creative processes?
5: <laughs> you should—you have to go back in history. You can answer that one. Well, <laughs> uh,
4: uh, uh, I think it is,
6: it's possible, I don't know, if you are adapting a novel, every show is different, every show is unique and I I, I I suspect, I don't know if it changes the process but I think when you have a novel that you've both loved and admired. Uh, it's just a slightly different exercise, I guess, in, in terms of bringing that to the screen. I think when you are, when you're working on a completely original story, it's just, um, it's it's a, you know, it's a slightly different, inevitably, well, it depends how good the book you're adapting is. I mean, sometimes one has a book that you start, you start with thinking you're going to be very faithful to, and you slowly lose radio contact with the book, and you end up with something that feels very, very different. I mean, we all loved Kate's novels, and we loved this book, but Patrick was particularly clear and firm that we were not you know whenever we could pay tribute to the words on the page we would and the, the real spirit of the book and and I think that's actually been a very rewarding part of the process because I think Patrick's respect for kate and respect for that book is really clear that isn't always the case when 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 a book is adapted by someone but it it, it meant that we always had there was always something to you know very clear that we could fall back on I mean I the process of working with Patrick on any project is always Always, and this is a very embarrassing thing to say, but it is always delightful just because he is so, he's so smart and so hardworking and pushes himself so hard and expects people around him to be vaguely smart. So I think, you know, we we, we all try hard and um, it's...
7: No,
5: well, it's, that's, uh, that's semi, uh, thank you, Damien, that's semi-embarrassing. And on the other side of it, I and mean, we've known each other for, for centuries, and uh, we have, our collaboration actually goes back far longer than I would care to remind Damien of. The reason I love working with him is, well, A, we're both pessimists. We've, we kind of dislike a lot of what we do. We watch things and go, oh God, this is awful. What have we done? We watch the first trailer and say, oh my God, it's far too exciting. Um, So there, <laughs> there, is, this, there is this helpful negativity between us, which doesn't mean we are pushing each other and ourselves all the time. But mm-hmm. I like working with him because I know I will deliver a script at one in the morning and he will have read it by five in the morning. And so it's like we have a similar, not quite work ethic. It's more, we're just a deeply, deeply concerned to make the work as good as it can be, and I, I know that sounds pious, but um, it's true.
4: Did writing and producing the tower change your opinion on policing?
5: It's a good question. No, is the long and short answer. It's partly that I'm reading a book written by a former policewoman who knows the police really well and likes the police. You know, she was she didn't come out of school and join the police. She went to university. She was an actor, and then she comes back in and she joins the police. She becomes a street cop um, like Lizzie for um, several years. But is bright and loves. The job and gets promoted and ends up a homicide detective. So she's seen all sides of the police. She's very. Clear headed about it. Basically, her view of them, which is kind of mine, is that most of them are doing a really hard job as best they can. You know, really basic, simple kind of truth. And everything I've heard from her, the other police we were working with, yeah, they're bad apples. Yeah, they are terrible miss you know, miscarriages of justice. Yes, there are cultures that are sort of wrong and, and sort of are not genuinely being moved out. So on the whole, nothing in the badness that we read about the police surprises me. And nothing about the goodness that I've seen in Kate, because I've been working with the police. On an, you know, an awful long time it surprises me either. It just sort of reassured me that there are lots of good police. And talking to young police women, black young black police women, when I was sort of talking about right, we've got a black character here. This is what happens. What would you do? That sort of thing. I was so reassured. It's the wrong word, heartened by. The commitment, intelligence, cheerfulness, whatever of these young women—it was like, okay, future's in good place.
4: How about you, Damien?
5: It's that
6: curious thing, isn't it? That it, you can work in television. You can make—you know—we make a lot. As a, as a, it's not just us. Most countries, the amount of investigative, police procedural drama that is made by you know any country that is serious about making television—it's a massive part of the mix of programs. And you know, it is—it is possible to spend uh, decades making TV. About police and about police investigations, and I think without necessarily thinking particularly, uh, having particularly lofty thoughts about the nature of policing, because I think you enter a sort of a TV hall of mirrors where you're so aware of the kind of you know the great police shows that have come before you. And i uh, what, what I loved about Kate's book, and we read a lot of crime fiction, a lot of detective fiction, police investigator fiction, and you can tell as soon as you start reading Kate's book, it just as there is no authenticity uh, to it that is completely captivating and it just demands your attention and I really did feel by the end of this first novel but at the end of the second novel at the end of the third novel as well it it just gave me so much respect for the almost impossible task of successfully policing a city a country and 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 it, it put a spotlight on what a thankless task it is to you know as a vocation it's a it's a, it's a really obviously hard Thing to do, and I think a lot of the time when we're making TV about uh, policemen, police women, detectives, they are usually the maverick hero who you know so- solves extraordinary crimes and and sort of gets great glory from it. And I think it's very easy to just sort of uh, as a TV maker to um to not really think beyond that. But you know, the maverick cop who gets results is kind of a compelling person to watch in a TV show. And what I love about this is it just it, it it looks at the institution of the police in a very balanced wise humane but also <laughs> exciting way i mean kate is just good at she knows how to balance proper character and, and 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 something that feels very truthful with stories that are not always big stories but but stories that have huge high stakes within them and uh i, I just think the the moral complexity of it is really it, it and which sounds very sort of like it has a, a kind of that it's going to be very earnest and just isn't at all they you you, you read the novel hopefully you, you would feel this if you watch the TV show, your your sympathy with the characters is constantly uh you know it it's it's constantly being recalibrated. I love Sarah as played by Gemma. I think she's a she's a really strong character. And there are there are places across the three hours where one really one's really angry with her. And there are places where Lizzie, the her kind of equal and opposite, the the young rookie cop, behaves in ways that are really very challenging. And she really tests our our kind of our patience and our love. And yet at the end of it, it, and particularly at the end of it I think you really you're really fascinated by them both and you have a sort of deep
5: respect for them both which is really interesting.
4: Patrick I wondered what's your writing process?
5: Uh, it's yeah it's funny um i always start whatever it is whether it's original or um an adaptation i I start just by writing and i have a series of notebooks that i um that i will where i'll break the story roughly i mean i was i'm working on something at the moment all right so just sort of serial killer writing it's very it's very neat The, the thought processes are but i need to make it neat so i need to break the story elements down so i'll spend quite a lot of time doing that and then once i think i have something i will go to what i always use in america which is cards so each As a card and on a big wall there's going to be cards which can be as genius and brilliant as Sarah wakes up you know whatever that scene is so then outline so this is all taking weeks sometimes months sometimes less depending what else I'm doing and whether I'm working with Damien or not then an outline just prose which is where I find the scenes usually what the movements are what we call blocking the the main dialogue moments might be so I'm beginning to find the the arc of the characters and so on there once I'm happy with that and in this this case because my deal with Kate was I was going to involve her in the writing because you know she had been through the experience of seeing post-mortem adapted by I think two writers unsuccessfully so she was you know nervous so I shared outlines with her both to show her my process and to get her comments you know creatively in terms of just as a reader um, a, a very cle- clever and informed reader and also as the author of the books was I was I you know looking after the characters in her view well enough then finally when all that's done and that's all quite boring but I find it interesting Um, then it's writing which if I've done my groundwork properly it's a fairly quick process you know a couple of weeks which should give me a draft that I'm willing to share with someone like Damien um that's my process but and it's endless I, I you know I was doing drafts of the script in post-production you know oh. each each episode is is 20 Have I've done forever as my wife will tell you is agony and it's at least 20 30 drafts um, and
4: do you tend to write at home and sort of during normal work hours or is it you know um,
5: and- well when I'm in America I'm in an office when I'm doing stuff in the UK uh <laughs> I can sometimes be in an office in America um see Secretly writing stuff in the UK, but um, the it, it depends. It depends where I am. I move around a lot at the moment. Kate, this was written mainly in lockdown, wasn't it, Damien? Yeah, I was. Uh, so I was in actually in someone else's home because uh, I was in the process of moving um, from LA back to Europe. So I was in limbo.
4: Um, and Damien, I've read that you're a stickler for detail. What's the most minute detail you changed on the tower?
5: Oh, I don't think I am at all. Uh, but uh, maybe- may <laughs> I just say I have spent. I would show you an email chain from three hours ago where I have. <laughs> seven emails from Damien about the synopsis in the DVD copy where um, he was quarrelling. I don't think I wrote the synopsis, but I certainly edited it. So anything and everything. Don't pretend.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's important, isn't it? <laughs> the detail is the detail is everything. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, I mean, Patrick is, we are as bad as each other and we egg each other on. Um, yeah, there are, the, 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 the trouble is, is that these days you can do so many things digitally. You can, you can, that, that you, can, you can correct really subtle things in ways that we just couldn't 20 years ago and it, it means that you, you you can always there are so many different ways in which you can just bend something a slightly different way for story clarity or to you know hide something that is unhelpful but I, I, I think that's, that's part of the fun of the conjuring trick isn't it?
5: So we will have an argument about a line, often a line that's not on camera, say a minor character and Damon might always have thought this line wasn't as funny as I thought it was and so the argument in post will be whether that line is raised sort of 10%, so you can actually hear it just about if you're listening carefully. Or in Damien's view, you diminish it 10%, so you actually can't hear it. So (laughs) (laughs) there's quite a lot of that goes on. Um, Yes, attention to detail, it's it's completely vital.
4: Um, And back to you, Patrick, I wondered what the difference is for writing and producing UK shows compared to the US, because you've obviously worked on shows such as Homeland and 24.
5: Well, the audiences are pretty similar. All right, so we're making drama more or less for the same audience. So we have the same attention to detail, the same sort of design for quality and you know or the same hope that the audience is going to like it the reason i was keen to do this and to you know do things like fearless is they're much shorter runs so there's sort of things that i can more or less write all myself and and if i'm available abuse myself in the u.s at bare minimum you're doing 10 12 hours and, and when i started over there we were doing 20 plus you know 24 obviously it was 24 a year so you really are you're working flat out all the time and that means you have to have other writers and the beauty of doing something like homeland is i'm surrounded by writers you know at least two of them are better, much better than I am. Um, and you have partners, if you like, in the writing process and not just in the writing process. If I have trouble with the scene, I can say, you know, what am I doing wrong here? What, what and we can, we'll fix it and vice versa. Uh, I will help someone else, but also in production, especially when you've got 12 or 20 episodes going, keeping an eye on set, keeping an eye on casting, on post, on all that. If you don't have people of a high caliber around you, men and women whom you trust and trust you and so on, you just wouldn't be able to make the things as good as you can. So you don't have that here. I have Damien. I um, have Damien. Um, he you know he's brilliant and I have Rebecca Keen, who who's also you know really 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 good on story on casting on on directing on everything so there's a team there they're not writers so if I have a real problem in writing I have to sort it out that's quite a big difference and I miss you know there are moments in this and there are things in the tower that I, I kind of feel I, I just didn't get right still and I think I would have got them right in America because I would have had people I could turn to oh. and
4: I also wondered I could be completely wrong but I dug out a very old article so hopefully it's accurate. You have a background in the military and I wonder if your background has drawn you to uh, to stories about the authorities and if it's influenced your writing.
5: Um, I was very briefly in the military and I loved it. It influenced me, not in terms of authorities, no. It influenced me, I was very young. History and politics, just where I was when I was in the army. Cold War, I'm that old. And it was, everything about that was just fascinating to me and has remained fascinating. So, you know, for example, Fearless is all about um, the run-up to the Iraq War. It all comes from the same place so no authority no most of the characters that I have loved working with whether I created them or not I mean Carrie Matheson in Homeland is an outlier uh Emma Banville in Fearless Jet Helena uh, Helena McCrory's character she's an outlier and outsider I'm much more driven uh, drawn to that sort of character than I am to for example to say Sarah you know I love Gemma's character but I'm very glad I have uh, Kate's novel to sort of help me discover who you know Sarah is and who Gemma can be I would find it hard to invent Gemma. I love writing her and I love her now and I know I'll be able to write many stories for her Um, but it was great to have Kate.
4: I also wondered how um, involved you both were in choosing locations for the Tower which I believe was shot in Liverpool and Manchester.
6: Well I have to be honest from my uh, point of view one of the awful grisly things about Covid obviously is that we are actively encouraged slash told that we're not you know we are not able to go on the road. Patrick was much better at, at forcing himself Onto, onto the road I was I, I was literally told that I wasn't allowed anywhere near the shoot and I you know so choosing of locations was all done by Dropbox and uh, it, it's not the same it's it, it is one of the great frustrations I think of, of the last it's not even 18 months is it uh, everything feels at arm's length because it, it literally is arm's length and I think as a producer it, it you feel that there you know some, something is, is very much lost in the mix the weird thing about that the upside for me about that just it, it, it is a as a kind of fan of the tower is obviously the books are steeped in london kate london is brilliant at writing about london because i never went to liverpool i can still sort of pretend in my mind that it's easier for me perhaps to uh pretend that this that we did film it in london and that this is our london because um because it's all i've it's all i've seen it feels more like london to me than it might do to patrick because he was actually living and breathing and sleeping in liverpool
0: veteran unscripted executive Hayley Babcock recently launched an eponymous media consultancy and a new partnership to assist Scottish independent production company Two Rivers Media with its expansion into the US. The debut of Hayley Babcock Media Consulting comes six months after the exec left A&E Networks, where she was head of formats, international production and programming. She spoke with Jordan Pinto about these developments and some of the other companies she's working with the trends she's observing in the international marketplace and what the success of Squid Game might tell us about audience appetites. Hayley, thanks so much for
7: joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure.
8: Um, So congratulations on the launch of the new company, Hayley Babcock Media Consulting. Um, could you tell us a bit about the launch of the company and some of your goals?
7: Absolutely. Um, it's almost really a relaunch because I had started this in a much smaller way several years ago. Yeah. So I, I reignited Haley Babcock Media Consulting this spring when I left A&E and uh, I'm really excited about it. My goals really are to utilize the skills that I've gathered over the years in my career. You know, I've, I've had the honor of working at some really great companies and have had a fantastic time doing so. From Vox to Sony to a and I've learned a great deal. I've gathered a lot of perspective and experience. And uh, I think there's a huge advantage now, especially in this very changing market, to being a smaller company, being very nimble, and being able to use that knowledge that I have and the experience and the contacts with an outside perspective as a consultant. And I think the time is really ripe for that to be very beneficial to a lot of companies. So I feel quite fortunate that I'm doing this at this time. When the
8: company was launched, um, or at the same time, you unveiled a partnership with Two Rivers Media, and through that partnership, HBMC will kind of lead in assisting um, Two Rivers with its U.S. creative de- development, production, and business strategy. C- could you talk a bit more about, you know, h- how you'll be working with Two Rivers Media?
7: Yeah, it's incredibly collaborative, and they're in a, a wonderful group of people, both creatively and just as human beings, which I find incredibly important. Um, I'm really very excited about a very prolific development slate that they've got. They're doing things from high-end documentary to factual, long-running entertainment, to reality competitions to gain... So there's a wide breadth of content that we're going to be able to work with and try and place and get up and running and collaborate on. For example, they've got a very big feature doc that is about to be announced. They are just being greenlit. They just got greenlit recently for piloting a brand new quiz in the UK for a major broadcaster. And I've got to tell you, I have a long history of a game background. It is very rare that I have seen a new quiz that is so well thought out and so much fun and so easy to understand and play. I really have high hopes for it so it's quite exciting to be able to jump in with a company that is building its business and building its slate and has a broad breadth of creativity and i'm here to help expand the marketplace into which they sell and where they produce
8: that sounds like a really interesting proposition um both for for two rivers and i'm assuming for other companies potentially are there any other partnerships that you've forged thus far that you're able to tell us about or is uh, you know is the lid still
7: on many of them? No, I have several and a couple of them that I'm happy to talk about because they are happy for me to mention them as well. I'm working with the wonderful distribution company, Magnify Media, as a consultant and, and representative of some of their formats, both scripted and unscripted here in the United States they don't have a boots on the ground sales executive here. So I am de facto able to represent a selection of their formats that I think could work here and place them with targeted producers that I know and I believe would be right for those particular pieces of creative. And so far, so good. It's going really well. And again, an incredible group of people. They have a really good creative sensibility. The fact that they're independent means they can go out and take content from several different places and choose, you know, work to represent those new titles. So they cherry pick content that they believe is really high quality and high caliber and can work well globally. And I get to work with that kind of content. It's really nice. Vincent TV as well. Vincent TV is a production company. They started in the Netherlands, but they have expanded to Belgium and they recently announced they have a UK company as well. You will have read that or known that, or perhaps written about it your Yourself. I worked with Vincent and his team while I was at AE, and he is a terrific creative and hires amazing people. He actually hired somebody in the UK whom I've known and really liked for years, and the person who is heading his creative in Belgium as well. So they are doing really interesting new things. They just got a new format commissioned by VRT in Belgium. And I'm going to be working with them to try and translate that here into the United States and help them expand their footprint as well.
8: Oh, it really sounds like you're doing a lot of things under this under this new umbrella. Um, if you were to kind of break it down into the, you know, into the things that you do specifically, could you just kind of give us the different buckets that HBMC works
7: in? You know, it sounds just from what I just explained like it's very heavily sales oriented. And that's not it. I mean, insofar as when you are a producer, you sell, you're a salesperson, when you're a producer, it is that. But what I love is I'm getting to use a lot of my skills and my knowledge. So I'm helping certain clients with development, really focused on their development slates, on looking at individual projects, on giving notes or a US perspective, or even a global perspective saying "Mm, something like that's been done before, or if you change this or tweak it that way, it will sell better into the US or it will work better internationally. So I'm doing that kind of work, both for individuals and companies that have development I am helping craft maybe what is just a show concept into a more structured, protectable, repeatable format structure. And I love doing that. I'm collaborating with certain people who have found a really interesting piece of talent in the United States and trying to craft a show around them. And I'm helping with business strategy and working with CEOs and the top creatives at certain companies in a really close and collaborative way to help help them attain their goals cross country, whether it is from Europe or UK into US or from the US to reach farther outside of the borders of the United States. And very often when you are outside and you can bring in an outside perspective and your experience from lots of different companies, you get a closer, more intimate relationship with those people, the CEOs, the heads of the departments to laser focus on what they're trying to do. And then to step back and go back to my own company and do that work without the distractions that you often and understandably have when you're inside a company. Because there are so many balls in the air when you're in a company that you have to pay attention to. And when you're outside of it and you're just focused on certain goals and certain projects, you can bring something different and valuable to the table. And that's what I'm working on doing.
8: Haley, could you talk a bit about your departure from A&E?
7: Sure. Look, it's no secret that our industry has been changing for many years. The last three to five years, there's been major shifts with advertising changing, with streamers coming in and playing the role that they play that they didn't play five years ago. And COVID and the pandemic just really accelerated those changes. And in my case with AE, you know, in the United States, I know it's different elsewhere, but very often when you're a senior executive, you work under contract and that contract is three years or two years, and then you continue Continue the contract and or you don't or you change your contract and get a new contract. So my current contract was coming up at AE. and and the pandemic and the focus of a in the format space was shifting and what the channels, the a and group of channels in the U.S. was focusing on was also shifting. They were navigating the new changes in the marketplace. So their ability and energy and need to focus on new third-party formats from outside of what the channels were commissioning, which is something I was trying to build, was shifting. That focus was shifting. And although there are still formats coming in from the channels, and there's a lovely team of people working on those formats and rolling them out brilliantly, what I was trying to build was no longer necessarily a main area of focus for them. So with my contract coming to an end, it made good sense for that to be the time for us to part ways. And I feel like I said earlier, I'm quite lucky that this shift happened when it did, because I think, you know, with change comes opportunity. And I think right now, With the big changes going on in the marketplace around the globe, smaller and medium-sized companies have the opportunity, I think, to be more nimble, to reflect and respond quickly, to be flexible, to respond to the needs of buyers with less overhead and more flexibility. And I'm working with those clients, the medium and the small-sized businesses out there. And I myself am a small and hopefully soon-to-be medium-sized business. So I'm really hoping to work with any lifetime history channel from the outside. You know, I left on very good terms with a lot of good friends and good feelings about the company and the department I worked for, so... I'm actually, we actually with Two Rivers just pitched Amy something last week and it was a nice little reunion.
8: I think the, the the fall's always an interesting time to take stock of the industry and where things sit. And coming out of COVID as well, I think it will, you know, potentially, hopefully fingers crossed coming out of the pandemic, it makes it a uh, you know a doubly interesting time. Um what are some of the trends that you're seeing in, in, in the formats market at the moment, or maybe some some of the things that you've observed from your position?
7: I think When it comes to the United States right now and what buyers seem to be looking at and being interested in, we are seeing a willingness now to get a little edgier when it comes to formats. And I think in an odd way, that's kind of a good sign. I believe that for the past, let's call it two years, 18 months to two years, since right before the pandemic, people were looking for feel good programming, things that did not have a hard edge or a bite to them. And that was the right tone at the right time without question. Um, And you get things like, you got things in that time, like love is blind and shows that were happy and feel good. Now that the pandemic Restrictions are starting to lift and people are going out more and are feeling safer and can joke around a bit more. You're seeing more things like too hot to handle or... F Boy Island. That's not to say that really happy and feel good programming isn't working. You look at something like Avatar or, you know, shows like Tough as Nail season three is coming back or just came back. I think there's room for both, but I think a little bit of edge is now something that is being welcomed. Internationally, I don't know if that is happening as well yet. Looking at a lot of the shows that are coming out for MIPCOM now, I think there's a great amount of creativity and a lot of new formats that are out there. And that is not something that we were saying one and two years ago, or even three years ago, people were leaving the markets going, I didn't really see anything new. There's not that much that's new. And I don't think that's true now. I think we're in a a great new wave of a lot of new content. And that's, I think, exciting for everybody, everybody in the marketplace. Really the rising tide really does lift all boats.
8: So I think it's good for everyone. Clearly consolidation has been and continues to be a, a major talking point in both the unscripted scripted industries. Um, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on how some of that top level consolidation is, is trickling down um, to the producers that you speak to.
7: Well, I think again, although I'm not at a large company right now, I imagine things are quite challenging at large companies because of that. If you are part of the consolidation, then you are very possibly being given parameters as to whom you can create for and sell to or buy from or not buy from. So you're, you may be being limited in that way. If you are not part of the consolidation, you might be finding that you don't have as many buyers or companies to collaborate with as you perhaps did previously, and you've got bigger competitors for the content you're trying to buy who might be able to offer different or better deals. I think for the creative marketplace, not for the broadcasters, to use the broad term broadcasters at fonts, but for the those who are creating content, again, I'm saying, I think for the small and medium-sized company, now is a very exciting time because it's a seller's market in many ways. A lot of people are looking to compete in getting the best creative and getting the thing that's going to pop and make noise. And if you are a creator who's got interesting content, you have a lot of people who want to look at it and talk with you about it and potentially bid for buying it.
8: During the pandemic, we all talked about the importance of face-to-face business and the importance of face-to-face relationships. How important do you feel that it is that the unscripted industry is kind of getting back to uh, yeah, rubbing elbows and uh, making deals, hopefully?
7: I think it's hugely important. I think it is wonderful. Uh, There is no substitution for human interaction and relationships and looking someone in the eye and sharing a laugh or a handshake or a hug and bumping into somebody at a restaurant or in the hallway, or in the case of Mipcom, at the, on the croissette or at the ground, and starting an impromptu conversation that can lead to something great. And it's we learned over the time of the pandemic that the use of video conference is fantastic, and it will certainly change the way we do things going forward for the better. I love being able to sit here and look at you while I'm speaking to you, even though we are on different coasts. I think that's fantastic and it's a blessing and it's a gift that we're going to keep. Nevertheless, it will never replace people being together. And I'm thrilled for MIPCOM and for the industry that the live in-person markets are coming back. And I think they will thrive. I think they will be different, but I think different is fine. Again, change presents opportunity and change can always mean improvement.
8: Haley, one thing I forgot to ask you about is what are some of the things that you're watching At the moment, or are there any things that have caught your eye, either on the scripted or the unscripted side?
7: I binge a lot of television and love it—things I have to watch and things I want to watch, and everything in between. Okay, so yes, I, my family, we binged Squid Game, but I have to say, we did this like two and a half, three weeks ago because I have a 15-year-old son, and because he was so aware of it, we spent one weekend watching the whole thing. And actually, the popularity of Squid Game, I think, speaks to two things: one, what I mentioned earlier about entertainment with an edge i was speaking about formats but i think squid game worked now and can work now and people are watching it now and if it had been released a year ago i suspect it would not have been as popular because people did not want to see something with that kind of a sharp edge to it it was times were too difficult to watch something that's difficult now we can watch things that are a little more difficult because we're feeling stronger I think that also it speaks to how the borders between cultures and countries in terms of entertainment consumption are getting more and more porous, which is something I've been a cheerleader for since I've been in international television for, I don't want to say how many years. So I am so excited about it a lot of Americans are now willing to watch things with subtitles. When a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, that wasn't the case. There are stars from around the globe who are recognized now everywhere and are you know, loved everywhere. And I think that's very exciting. So that is a scripted property that we really love, But we also watched Leticia, which was great. Didn't watch that with my son, but it was also, a, you know, a drama from another country that my husband and I watched and loved. I'm looking forward to Tough as Nails season three. Uh, We've watched craftopia just to check that out i'm watching avatar have to see that i'm gosh i'm watching so many things that i'm blanking on a lot of them right now
8: <laughs> following up on the on the squid uh, what you were mentioning about squid game um i i should say so i'm only four episodes through um but but i'm i was interested in looking at it do you, do you think unscripted producers would be looking at that show and thinking that there are any elements that i, I think it was really interesting what you said about maybe a year ago people weren't ready to see some of the some of the edgier stuff or something with the with a darker heart potentially but now they are um i don't know i I saw squid game or the first four episodes i've seen it's so visually arresting i think like taking taking away the you know the harming of the 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 contestants Uh, and please take that away and taking away kind of you know some of the deeper societal um you know elements that are in there do you do you think there are any pieces of it that could be taken for, I don't know, for an unscripted producer or an unscripted show?
7: I think it's more, look, I think on the one hand, I think Squid Game took from the unscripted world in that with a lot of shows that we've seen out in the marketplace over the past couple of years. Think about um, Holy Moly, right? Think about Oh Sit a while back there have been a lot of big, shiny floor game shows that have taken their cue from childhood classic games that we played as children. So I purport to you that Squid Game took from that and put it into their scripted universe, which is great and fine. In terms of what unscripted producers might take from Squid Game, certainly nothing dark and dangerous and evil, but I do think all producers and all creatives who are looking for their next inspiration are influenced by what is popular in the world, whether that's a song or a music video, whether that's an article or a person, who has done something extraordinary in the world or a movie, you do get your inspiration from what is in the zeitgeist. And Squid Game is certainly in the zeitgeist. I would say, you know, talking about something with a slightly edgier or darker heart, as, as you nicely put it. If Fear Factor hadn't existed as a show before, something like Fear Factor might get invented today. Or now that I've said it, it's in the ether. I wouldn't be surprised if Fear Factor came back for a renaissance in certain territories where you're pushing an envelope and it's entertainment, it's safe and it is not mean spirited, but it's on the edge. And that sort of plays into another trend that I think is out there. And people are talking about that certain tentpole shows or classic formats are either getting stronger, even though they've been around for quite a while, the master chefs and the bachelors of the world, the survivors of the world, or those which were strong and maybe went away are coming back again, like undercover boss and bigger tentpole shows like that. I think... I think that is a trend that we're seeing right now. And I think people who have new concepts for big, potentially tentpole shows are in a good environment to try and get new shows launched that will be the future master chefs and survivors and undercover bosses of the world.
0: That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.